Hello, friends. This is Sarah from Linguistics After Dark. I know it's been a hot second since we've gotten anything out on the feed. Between the pandemic and two of us moving, it's been a little chaotic behind the scenes. But I'm pleased to report that we're not dead. And in fact, we are so not dead that we've done a live show, and we have another one coming up. This episode that you're about to hear is from LingFest back in April, and next month in August, we are returning home to CrossingsCon with another live show at the CrossingsCon Slipping Sideways Online Bonanza. Details about both of these awesome events are in the episode description, and full show notes and transcript are in the works. Thanks for your patience. But for now, settle in, grab a snack or a drink, and enjoy. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Linguistics After Dark Live. I'm Eli. And I'm Sarah. And if you've got a question about language and you want experts to answer it without having done any research whatsoever, we're your podcast. So settle in, grab a snack or a drink, and enjoy. Hey, Sarah. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Um, ready for this also. Ugh. So right before we started, my cat took a flying dive onto the desk and I was like, no, and she is back. So I'm keeping an eye on her over here. We may have a, a guest host for this live show. <laughs> Excellent. Um, my cat is not a big fan of the basement where I currently am. So he will probably not make an appearance. Yeah, um, she has an uncanny knack for when I'm on a video call. Here she is. <gasps> this is Cleo. Off you go, Cleo. <laughs> wow. wow, she is just going to be super insistent. All right. Um, what are you drinking today, Sarah? Um, well, I'm finishing up an iced coffee that uh, is not mostly actually from Duncan. It is a, I drank that this morning and then I made more coffee. Um, but I also have a, what is this? Down, oops, Down East Double Blend Cider that Ooh. I might crack open later. Nice. How about you? Um, I'm gonna hopefully get a big, nice. Ah, nice. Yeah. Uh, so this is an Allagash North Sky here. Um, mm. Our mutual friend Sky uh, was showing this off a little bit uh, earlier and I was like that'd be great we've had a bit of a cold weather stout will be wonderful today it's like 75 and sunny so <laughs> warm weather stout there you go all right um well welcome everybody so lovely to see folks in the chat and all that um and for our anyone new we're super excited that you're here and uh Eli, how does this work? Tell us about the show. So uh, our listeners send us questions, but today we'll be taking questions live. And as usual, we have three rules. One, all questions are fair game. Two, we're not allowed to do any research whatsoever. And three, if you stump us and be gentle on the live show, uh, we have to drink. So... For today, since we're taking questions live, how can our listeners out in internet land ask us questions during the live stream? Uh, so our producer, Jenny, who is here behind the scenes, she just doesn't have her camera on, um, she will paste a link into the YouTube chat 
um, whenever we are coming up on time for a new question. Um, and it'll be the link to the Zoom call that Eli and I are currently on. Um, and you can click on it and you'll enter the waiting room. And then we will admit people one at a time to ask their questions. So be chill. Um, and if you keep your camera turned off, your face will not appear on the stream, just like Jenny is not visible right now. Uh, if you want to be on the stream, you can turn your camera on. Um, and yeah. Um, and of course we love audio questions. Uh, it's really fun to have people actually speak their questions. Um, and if you're comfortable being, comfortable being on camera, uh, it's a great opportunity to ask us questions about sign language or gesture. And uh, while we're getting all of the rest of that set up, some general thanks and acknowledgements. So we don't have a show notes recap because it's a live show, but we do want to thank our patrons who helped us with a live dry run a couple of weeks ago and gave us some wonderful feedback on how to make this as enjoyable as possible. Um, current and future patrons can replay that show anytime from the link that we've posted on Patreon. And if you want to support us, uh, links to our Patreon and Ko-fi are in the description below. So you can just pull that down and, and click on that. Tips are greatly appreciated as always. Um, and we also want to thank all of our patrons uh, whose support helped make live captioning possible today. Um, we have given our captioner, Kelly, a linguistics-oriented dictionary to help her prepare, especially for this event. But by the nature of this being an unscripted live Q&A, uh, it's quite possible that y'all would come up with topics we didn't predict. Or we might give examples using IPA or foreign words or something that would be uh, not possible to transcribe. So if that's the case, we'll do our best to accommodate it in real time. And we will definitely post an edited transcript after the show um, and link it in the notes for anyone replaying, or it will also be available on our website. So super thank you to Kelly, our captioner, who is typing these words right now. And a reminder to us and to anybody who joins the Zoom to, when you ask your question, speak slowly, clearly, so that Kelly can keep up. All right, and uh, finally, finally, none of this would have happened without the efforts of Lauren Gaughan and Gretchen McCulloch and the rest of the LingFest organizing committee. So extra special thanks to them. And having said all of that, uh, actually, one other thing, um, use the hashtag LingFest when you are talking about this event and any of the other events that you go to. I know um, Ling Field Notes, uh, which is another podcast, is having their event right after this. So you could go check that out. Um, and now, having said all of that, uh, get your questions in the chat and or hop into the Zoom whenever Jenny posts the link. Um, and Eli is going to present the language thing of the day. Yeah, so uh, usually this is let's learn a language thing. But uh, today, I think we're going to do let's uh, scream about a language thing. Um, so the, today's language thing of the day is a game called Heaven's Vault. Um, it, is <laughs> it is a video game by a studio called Inkle, um, and it is very linguistics focused. Um, we are going to avoid spoilers, um, 
And that's tough because a big part of the game is translating an ancient language that you come across. So you play as an archaeologist um, who is traversing the world that she lives in, um, finding little bits of script here and there. And then a big part of the game is figuring out the history of the world and um, what has happened through translating these bits of script. Um, so just straight up, I mean, hopefully at the end of this, you will be convinced to go buy and play this game. Um, but uh, and we're not sponsored, although Ankle, if you want to get on the show, like <laughs> get in touch. So um, Sarah and I have both played through this game. Uh, Sarah, you're like halfway through a second playthrough, right? Uh, maybe like a third. It's a very... It's not quite a sandbox game, but it is very self-directed. Like there's not a linear plot. And so it's very difficult to assess what percentage of the game I've played. Um, it's called Heaven's Vault. Uh, I'll put the name in the chat or Jenny can. Um, yeah. So one of the thing that is, things that is really interesting as I was playing through the game um, that I was thinking about. And as I have talked to you and uh, we have a mutual friend named Dash who is uh, streaming it right now as they go through the game. One of the things that keeps coming up is the sort of Watsonian doyalist dichotomy of um, designing a language that you know is going to be part of a game that needs to be translated versus kind of just doing a whole conlang um, in and of itself. And so there is kind of a question, and I ran into this, Dash is running into this, I think you ran into this a little bit, where it's like, okay, how easy is the game designer going on us? Like, are the words, do we expect them to be in subject, verb, object? Do we expect them to have the same connotations as English? Um, you know, when you do a conlang, um, you a lot of times reach for other stuff. So you say, oh, like, here's a thing my native language doesn't have and I, I want to incorporate it, play with it, that sort of thing. Um, what Did you have any, any thoughts on this? Um, I thought they balanced it really well between making it accessible to a, like, to a largely English-speaking audience. Um, but it is definitely not just English written in funny letters. Um, and I do think that you and I and Dash to an extent have had the tendency to go, oh, well, I shouldn't assume that this language is anything like my language and like way overthink things. Um, but that's also part of the fun. Um, and it's also really interesting um, Actually, I was talking to Dash earlier today about this, and uh, and they were talking about like an assumption that they had made about um, a certain type of noun, and that the word knowledge didn't really fit into that class of noun, but it clearly did based on the text that they were seeing, and like, hmm, what do I think about this? And then they were like, well, you know, just because I don't consider knowledge uh <laughs> there's dash in the chat yes we are talking about heaven's vault and i'm talking about you uh uh they said like you know just because i don't cons you know we have like earth fire 
water, air, knowledge. Like that's not one of the core elements, uh, but also that it could be like in in um, in the heavens vault world, it could be. And so like, maybe that's a Doyleist thing and maybe that's a Watsonian thing, but like, it's just a really interesting uh, way to think about story writing too. Yeah. Um, and just in case anybody is not familiar with those terms, um, they come from Sherlock Holmes, where the frame story is these are journals that Watson is writing, but the actual author is Arthur Conan Doyle. And so Doyleist means from a perspective of the author or outside the story, and Watsonian means from the perspective of, of inside the story. Um, God, seriously, she's really... Um, yeah, I think that it is interesting because you also you also learn about some of the inbuilt um, kind of I don't want to say assumptions, but features from the world. You can look at the language and the glyphs that you see and see some um, some underlying semantic connections. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it. It is, it's a thing that happens with conlangs a lot where you kind of get a lot more superior wharf effect than you get in normal languages um, because you're thinking deeply about it and you're saying, oh, to this society, this aspect of, of the thing is, is deeply connected or it's very close to this or so on. Um, and then you can kind of see that in, in some of the stuff. Um, I think that's also particularly true for this language because the writing system is... Um, oh, it's logographic. At yes. least we think it is. We're pretty sure. Um, we don't actually... In my second playthrough, I have gotten more evidence of what the language sounds like, but I do not have yet any uh, like phonetic evidence tied to any written evidence such that I can say, okay, this makes this sound. Um, and so we have assumed that it is logographic and- But there are it, hints a little bit in the game where you can start to, and I have, I have actually have seen the developers say that they tried to put enough in there that you could work it out. So actually my second playthrough is gonna be um, it's going to be actually kind of focused on trying to figure that out. The sounds? Yeah, trying to figure out oh, what the Oh, I didn't the know they said are. that. Yeah, yeah, I want to do that too. Um, but yeah, and it's really interesting too, because um, as with a lot of logographs and a lot of um, signs in sign languages, there's a level of iconicity that's there, but that doesn't mean it's immediately transparent the second you see the thing. Um, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of polysemous stuff that happens as well. Um, so let's see, can I say this? I think I'm gonna say this. Um, you go through the playthrough, you get pretty familiar with the, the language and the various glyphs and so on. Um, and at the very end, uh, not as part of the, plot of the game but in uh um you know in the credits basically um they give you they give you a sentence you've never seen it before um 
And uh, by that point, you have enough knowledge, especially if you really like went around and looked at every inscription that you could and, and really tried to, to translate everything. You have enough knowledge to look at that and translate it, even though it's none of the words are anything that you have seen before. And that is really, I mean, you might have a couple function words that you've seen before or something like that, but that yeah. is, it's just really cool. It is very cool. Um, I do think one of the things that is interesting to, to think about is that um, the, the language is necessarily constrained though, because if you are playing it within the bounds of a game, you can only really expect somebody to remember or think about, I don't know, probably 50 or maybe a hundred. I don't know, how many glyphs would you say you got eventually? Uh, 50 sounds maybe right, but I've also since discovered more on my second play. Hmm. Um, and it helps because they give you like, every time you come across a new word, they go, hey, this looks like these other words you might've seen. And it automatically like, records on the pause menu or one of the pause menus every inscription you've ever seen so you can go back and look at all of them when you want to um so it's very player friendly for the most part um yeah and i will say the other cool thing that i really enjoy is that when you do a second playthrough um it gives you the option of starting over from scratch or the character forgets everything she knows, but the player gets to keep their knowledge of the language and the vocabulary. And they like correspondingly increase the difficulty of all of the inscriptions that you come across um, or most of them. Uh, and I heard someone else say that it was like designed to be played up to like six or seven times to get all of the information and all of the possible plot and language things. So it's like, it's very well thought out, I think. Yeah, this is actually a thing that Inkle Studios in particular does is they have a, um, a piece of software called Ink, which they have written and open sourced. So it's out there, mm -hmm. which um, allows you to write. They first started it with a, with a text-based narrative, um, but it allows you to write the narrative in such a way that there are branching paths built within it. And so you will, even, even though I expect that the larger um, plot of the game stays, you know, the, the major plot points stay pretty similar, even you and I in our first playthroughs, I think even though we chose similar things, we actually ended up with a bunch of, of differences uh, between them, so. Um, Renee is asking whether it's a multiplayer game or a solitaire one. It is, uh, it is a single player game. So, uh, yeah, go play this game. It's really yeah. cool. It is super fun. Um, I, I was, I just, I'm going to add one last thing, which was Eli played this before I did. And as I was playing, I was like texting him random thoughts I had. And at one point I said, wow, this one character is a super irritating co-pilot. And Eli was like, I never traveled with that character. What are you talking about? And I was like, oh, okay. Because <laughs> up till that point, we had had pretty consistent 
experiences, I think. And I made a very different decision at one point than you did. And it changed not the whole outcome, but. Yeah. But it meant that we had some really different experiences later in the game, just because we had a different personality in one of uh, accompanying the main character. Yeah. It was very cool. Yeah. Um, also, this is just a, a tiny little plug, and then we're going to get on to questions right after I say this, um, which is, so uh, Sarah and I and Jenny and a, and a few other folks um, run a convention. It's a literary sci-fi fantasy, et cetera, convention called CrossingsCon. We're doing a digital version of it this year. And one of the things that we will be doing is a spoilerific uh, panel for Heaven's Fault. So um, the con will actually be free. So keep your eyes uh, open, keep your ears open and play the game before August because uh, we're gonna dive super deep into the linguistics of it and the language and, and all of that stuff, but it will be very, very spoilery. So yeah. cool, go play this game. It's so cool. If you yes. like language, you will like this game. Um, all right. Onto real language questions submitted by real listeners. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're going to start with our questions. And I'm going to give a quick uh, thing. Um, if you want to send us a question in the future for a recorded episode, you can email it in text or audio uh, to questions at linguisticsafterdark.com. Uh, and the speaking something out loud in an audio file is super handy for phonology and accent questions. Also, uh, for the rest of these questions today, Jenny will be holding us to about 10 minutes per question, and we risk high voltage shocks if we do not comply. So we'll do our best. Um, it sounds like we are going to start with uh, Naomi's question uh, in the chat. Actually, I think Renee has been waiting for a little bit. So. Oh, I didn't Let's see go with she was them in the... first. Got yep. it. Yes. Uh, all right. Here we go. Caller number one, you're on the line. <laughs> hey. So, uh, how's it going? What's your question? Can you... uh, I'm having. Sound oh, there you are. Me. Yep. There we go. Can you hear me? Hey, yes. Yep. How's it going? What's your partner? You should um, mute your computer, though. This is my dad. It's fine. Ah. Uh, um. There's a terrible delay and an echo. Um, yeah. Um. Go on to somebody else, and I'll chat my question. Okay. Oh, all right. Um. In that case, I think we will go on to. Naomi's question. Um, so they ask, as you know, in England, we call underwear pants. What I want to know is why do we say a pair of pants, but a singular thong? Uh, that is an excellent question. <laughs> so I actually know the answer to this. Oh, go right yeah. ahead. Yeah. Um, so the thing is, is that pants used to be two separate legs and you would lace them together. Um, oh. they were not one single garment and they eventually, um, they eventually f fused or the lacing got too much or 
whatever fashion is as you know whatever it wants to do um and now we have one garment which we refer to still as a pair of pants um and language sometimes just fossilizes like that you know you get a pair of scissors is another one of these things um and what was the one we were talking about was the um was somebody had brought up in a separate discussion um nationals or oh yeah 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 as for national championships and so sometimes you just um it just be like that yeah like sometimes stuff gets lexicalized as a plural and there's kind of not not no there's no logic to it it just is but the etymological reason is because um is because we used to have two pants fair enough um i i actually don't know how that um and i guess that that's the same for trousers i don't know mm -hmm. how that relates to i mean I, my guess is that the underwear version of it is that you know, underwear used to be longer and it probably was the same kind of garment and the, the word is just the same now if you're talking about briefs or whatever. Um, and I see uh, Marie in the chat said, I guess the follow-up question is why are pants underwear in the UK but full-length outer garment in the US? And my hypothesis on both of what Eli just said and Marie just said is um, that in fact the UK word is a shortening of underpants. Um, which is another term people in the US use sometimes for that undergarment. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I am guessing, not doing any research. Yeah, uh, it's either that or I think it probably split to, you know, where you had pants and then trousers that go on top of it, or then you had pants and then underwear that goes. Yeah. yeah, that's true. One or the other. Um, Cool. Well, we have uh, James on the line. Okay. So let's uh, let's get a question from them. We'll admit them to the thing. Hi, James. Hello. Well, Zoom is apparently just not our friend today. Uh, James, you are say. There we go. How do you rhyme in sign languages? Or can you? Yes, that is an excellent question. Thank you. Um, so, uh, okay, so you can rhyme sort of, and you can definitely do poetry. Um, there are a lot of really awesome uh, American deaf poets out there. I can't, I'm sure that there are also um, awesome poets in other countries who are deaf, but I don't know about them. Uh, but one of the thing, um, and I should also clarify, I am not an ASL poet and I haven't been super active in that community in several years. So my knowledge might be out of date, but um, some of the things that are really popular to do are to use um, elements of signed words in repetitive ways, um, in a similar way to how you would rhyme um, spoken words. So 
when we think about spoken words and poetry, we think about rhythm and we think about how many syllables a word has and we think about the ending sound. Um, some types of uh, oral poetry, you think about the beginning sound, excuse me, like alliteration, things like that. And so instead of sounds and syllables in sign language, you would look at, excuse me, things like hand shape or um, Uh, oh, repeating the question. So sorry. So James's question was in sign language, can you rhyme things basically? Um, and so some of the types of, uh, some of the types of things you would see in a sign language is repeating the hand shape or repeating the motion or repeating the placement of the sign. Um, and so there are whole poems or jokes or like tongue twister type things where you pick a handshape, say it's this handshape, and you try to only use words that use oh, this handshape. That's so cool. You, so you could be like, um, oh gosh, now I'm like blanking on all of my vocabulary. Um, but you could be like, drunk acting something, I don't know. Uh, I've completely run out of vocabulary. Um, and, or there's like, you know, like people, bicycle, um, something like that. I, I don't know any of these off the top of my head, but those are the types of things I've seen. Um, and my personal favorite is doing the acrostic um, where in American Sign Language and in many, but not all other sign languages, you have these um, hand shapes that represent uh, the written letters of the local alphabet. Um, and they also like double as just hand shapes that, you know, cause you have to put your hand in some kind of shape to make a sign. So um, like for bicycle, this is just like, literally representing the pedals for the word people you're using the letter p and you're using the same the motion is no longer emblematic of anything but the p represents people um and so you can take a handshape like this and um spell something out and the the only poem that i remember of that style i don't remember all of it and I don't remember the name of the poet so I don't want to get it wrong but basically what they did was they spelled out the words d-e-a-f deaf and then c-a-n-t can't and using those eight letters they listed eight things that they felt they were barred from doing because they were deaf and like their frustration with that. Um, that's, that's super cool. It's that's so a, cool. That's taking the imagery of poetry to the next level. Like, yeah. Um, I will definitely, we're not doing research now, but we typically do research after the show and put stuff in the show notes, in the description of the video on our website. So we will do that for this. Um, hopefully we'll have that up, uh, about a week from now. Um, so keep an eye on social media, keep an eye on the channel 
Um, but I will definitely look up, I think that's going to be Clayton Galley, but I don't remember for sure. Um, yeah, it's very cool. From a, um, I guess from a phonetic or phonological point of view, this like, this makes a lot of sense because talking about the, the features of segments in sign, um, you know, with a spoken language, you have, uh, you have segments which are the sounds, but in a sign language, you have hand shape and motion and location and, and that kind of thing. And so if there is a rhyme rule or a, an alliteration rule, because a, um, a lot of languages have an alliteration poetry, mm -hmm. like they don't rhyme, they use alliteration instead, um, that it, that depends on having the same segments at the same place from line to line or utterance mm -hmm. to utterance. So it, it is nice that the, the linguistic parallel works as well, where you're taking a segment or a feature or something and using it in the same place over and over. Yeah. Cool. Uh, thanks, James. That was a really excellent question. Yeah. Love being able to give examples on camera. Um, Jenny, what should we go for next? Um, okay, cool. So uh, my dad uh, put his question in the chat. Um, recently read an article about reduplic ablaut reduplication as a pretty firm descriptive linguistic rule, but do you know where it came from? So why does it say okay to say why does it sound okay to say flip-flop, but flop-flip sounds ridiculous? Oh, that is that is good. Uh, I have not heard, I mean, obviously, the, as a native speaker, right? Yeah. Uh, familiar with the concept, but uh, I've never heard about ablaut reduplication as a sort of documented phenomenon, although I, I guess it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I would say from a completely off the top of my head guess. Um, so if you think about like flip-flop, sing-song, um, what are some other examples I wanna see if my theory holds up? Oh, I. this is the thing that I think we are thinking of the same thing, which is um, that it is a, it's a, I guess it would be a front back thing, right? either front back or high low or high low um cuz i guess you'd have you'd have oo and you'd have ea and yep. i don't i don't know that that but flip flop will go front to back jenny sing, says sing tick tock ding dong ding dong bebop it's not quite the same thing yeah um, but i mean it's it's close enough i think yeah um, so yeah i'm going to go with front back like where the vowels are pronounced in your mouth. I and E and E are at the front and O and ooh, splish splash. Splish splash is good because it's got an A in it. Yes. We haven't and, had one of those yet. And ash is at the front, not the back. So I'm go I'm revising tic tac. Yep, high low. That's what it is. The high low thing. I so I wonder if it's just that that is 
I don't know. It's dangerous to to um, make physiological arguments about why a thing is the way that it is. I don't. I don't think it's physiological. I think it has to do with the phonology and the um, prosody of English. So what I would want to know before I made any further claims is in other languages where you have that type of reduplication, does it follow the same pattern? Does it follow a different consistent pattern? Or mm -hmm. is it inconsistent because that language doesn't have that sort of restrictive prosody? So there's knickknack and we've also got a uh, tic-tac in the chat, which is interesting because you get tic-tac-toe and mm -hmm. that, um, I mean, I guess you could do tic-tac toe there is a, a way in which it continues to go tic tac toe yeah, yeah I, you're envisioning the shopping cart the yeah. vowel shopping cart um but also toe is like a little different or like eeny meeny miny mo eeny meeny miny. oh miny is a is a diphthong right but eeny meeny miny is still a at the back, but still uppish mo. Yeah, yeah. I, that is really interesting. I would. Um, oh, Avery says enthusiasm confirms this is common to a number of languages. Awesome. Um, so that's cool. Yeah. Uh, sweet. Yeah. So uh, Jenny has put in our chat that she's trying to think of non onomatopoeia examples. Um, I would be really surprised to find one in English because we don't really use reduplication as a grammatical um, as a grammatical uh, mechanism. Yeah. Outside of onomatopoeia. That's true. And even flip flop in the original question is derived from the sound that the shoe makes. Yeah, you're not. It's lexicalized at the point when it's a name for a shoe. You're not right. actively doing the reduplication. Right. Um, how about bing, bang, boom is another one of these. Bing, bang, boom. So it sounds like maybe the tendency in English, at least, is to go high at the front, low at the front, high at the back, low at the back, if you have more than oh, two. Because yeah. so that would account for bing, bang, boom, and tic-tac-toe. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I never thought about that. Um, for folks who are kind of wondering when we're talking about high or low, front or back, um, all of your vowels basically are, there's no obstruction in your airway. Why am I talking about this? You're the phonetics person. That's true. Um, and actually, because we have the technology, uh, I'm going to share my screen with the... Uh, the vowel shopping cart, as you said. Um, um, while you're doing it, that your dad has also reminded us that there are reduplicative stuff like hocus pocus, oh, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, where is there a, a consonant equivalent? And I, hmm, I I do not know. Um, I would need more examples of words like that. Yeah. To determine any kind of pattern, I think. And that's that's different than schmo reduplication, which I think is I think that's a different mechanism. Yep. Um, so. Ah, oh, that next question is good. Um, but first, let me get this picture up here. Um, open in 
new window. Zoom in. Let me zoom in. Why are you terrible? Oh, because you're a Pinterest. Okay. No, no shade to Pinterest. They're just difficult. All right. I'm going to share. Little, little shade to Pinterest. A little shade to Pinterest. Let me try to share my screen. Um, okay. This is during the very first Linguistics After Dark, which was a live panel. We had a whiteboard. Yes. That was very useful for these kinds of things. That's true. Okay, so hopefully uh, y'all can see on the stream now um, this diagram of vowels. Um, and it, it sort of vaguely represents the shape of your mouth. Um, so like up here, you would have your top teeth were vampires today. Down here, you would have your bottom teeth, um, and then your tongue is like somewhere in here, right? Uh, this is very scientific. And um, it's only like kind of mouth shaped, but people have uh, taken to calling it the vowel shopping cart because it's also kind of shaped like a lot of uh, at least North American shopping carts. I don't know about other places. Um, and so if we're looking at words like um, like flip-flop, here's the flip and here's the flop. So we're going from top to bottom. If we have like tick, tack, toe, we're going top, bottom in the front and then to the back or bing, bang, boom is up there. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's basically that. Um and this is this is basically your like mouth position or tongue position as you are um as you're saying the vowels. Yes. Yes, like where are you putting so when you say the word all of these they've done the examples with um what we call minimal pairs. So all of these English words except for boy uh are they start with a B, they end with T, and the only thing that's different in the middle is the vowel sound. Um, and I assume they have boy in there because boit is not a thing. Um, but so if you pronounce the word beat, you can feel like, basically welcome to being a linguist and saying random words over and over at yourself and freaking out your roommates. Um, but if you pronounce all of these and kind of try to feel where your tongue is, uh, then you will start to understand what this is getting at. Be aware of the tongue in your mouth. <laughs> now you are. Um, All right, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna close this. So mi minimal pairs, by the way, is a really good way if you're trying to determine whether something is one way or another. You know, it's, it's the scientific method, control everything else except the thing that you're trying to change. Exactly. Um, Jenny is threatening the high voltage shock device. So I think we need to move on to the next um, the next one. Yes. So we have Emma waiting uh, on the Zoom. So I'm going to bring them in now. Cool. Uh, someone has mentioned Schma reduplication in the, in the chat. Yeah, we, it, that was a different mechanism, I think. Um, hi, Emma. 
Oh, still connecting to audio. God, Zoom. Car says. Um, Amaril, I'm really sorry that you're already aware of your tongue. That was not planned. I mean, we do say if you weren't, right? That's true. For new listeners, that's usually our closing tagline. Um, looks like Emma is still connecting to audio. So um, I'm going to give her a few uh, a few more minutes. So yep. I guess. Um, I'm going to just comment really quickly while, uh, while Emma gets connected on um, Josh Chen's question in the chat about um, the opinion size, age, shape, color, origin, material, purpose, adjective, order. Um, it does happen in other languages. Um, actually, my colleagues uh, were talking about this in the group chat recently um, because a lot of them, I mean, most of us are native English speakers, but I'll, I teach at a high school and a lot of our language teachers are native um, Spanish speakers um, and other languages, but they were the ones talking about it. Uh, and they were like, oh, I never actually learned this when I was learning English. And like, hey, English speakers, does this check out? Um, and it's not like a hundred percent solid, even in native minds. Like you can say, I think, was it big bad wolf is a uh, opinion or is size before opinion, um, but we don't object to that. Uh, but yes, typically in a lot of languages, there is like a kind of unspoken expectation of what order you're going to list things in. Um, and I know like in French, for example, most adjectives come after nouns, but adjectives that have to do with beauty, age, size, goodness, or number go before the nouns just because they do. Yeah, I think this is one of these things that is like deep native speaker knowledge. So people could go their entire lives without realizing it. For sure. Um, and honestly, like, I think it would probably take me an entire week to sit down and figure out what it is in English outside of- Someone um, telling me. Yep. So Emma's uh, audio has connected and they have been patiently waited, um, waiting muted. So Emma, what is your question? Please unmute and ask. Hey, sorry about that. Um, my question was just about, I like learning about different language families, but I often notice that there's kind of a debate about whether languages should be classified as the same family and how closely related they are. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about like what are the dangers of grouping languages together and what, what do we learn from language families? Thanks. This is a this is a really great question. Have you um, have you had some experience with particular language families that you think are controversial or something like that? Um, sometimes, like I think in like Central Asia or um, the Middle East, sometimes I've seen that there's debates about how closely languages are related. So that that's that's an interesting area. Definitely. Cool. <laughs> do you, you want me to jump or? Sure, if you have a thought, go for it. Sure. Um, so I think that the, it's, it is, 
it is interesting because it's a confluence of a number of of different things, which is that um, languages do not have distinct edges, really, um, and that often the designation of what is a language versus a dialect or what are two separate languages can be political or have to do with identity more than any kind of scientific uh, you know, differentiation of like, ah, oh, this, we can tell this is a different language than this because of that. So that's, that is part of like just putting labels to languages in a tree to start with is like really tough. Like what, what result, like how deep are you going to go? How much are you going to differentiate? Um, in particular, um, in Central Asia and um, in particular in China, there's also a very deep um, political aspect to this um, with, you know, talking about uh, a lot of people talk about dialects of Chinese. And that is, I mean, ask three linguists what the difference between a dialect and a language is, and you'll get 18 different answers. Um, but there are clearly some cases with the things that get grouped underneath Chinese that where they are sometimes not related, sometimes distantly, distantly related sometimes. Um, and Victor Mayer, who uh, writes a lot on this at the excellent blog, Language Log, um, which you are, if you are subscribed to this podcast, you should be reading Language Log, mm-hmm. um, calls them topolects um, to assign them to places without trying to do any kind of um, relationship granting. There's also a bit of a weird historical um, dimension here where especially uh, like in the 1800s, you had lots of people trying to connect, uh, you know, like Japanese to Hebrew or like saying that, oh, uh, you know, Aramaic is the oldest language that's in the Bible. And so it's the Ur language. So if we want our country's language to be better than everybody else's, then let's connect it directly to Aramaic or, or that kind of thing. And so there's just like the whole idea of what is in what language family. And then also if you have a language that is an isolate, so it has no known, um, you know, close relatives, like those are really prone to being put in families with other isolates, like Basque ends up in a bunch of different, uh, things. Elizabeth in the chat has said uh, a language is a dialect with an army. I think I've heard is a dialect with an army and a navy and that um, I used to think that that was about like it's an overgrown dialect but it it actually refers to like the political thing where it's like if you are a country that has an army and a navy and you are like no our language is Bosnian not Serbian yeah. right then like that's who's going to tell you now. Um I had not, I've never seen Basque like categorized with any other isolate. Uh, And that just kills me if people are doing that because like the whole point is things that are five things that are unrelated doesn't make them related to each other. That's, oh yeah. That's not how relationships work. But when it's the 1800s and linguistics is new, Ooh, you want to be the person who discovers that Finnish and Basque and all of those are that's true. That's are true. all the same. Um, yeah, I think I think everything you've just said about the political difficulties, uh, in particular, is a lot of it. And I think the other difficulty is in 
I mean, it's, it's still sort of political, but like who's doing the classifying? Um, because I think there's a fly in front of my face, sorry. Uh, I think that, you know, like you're saying, a lot of the people doing this originally um, were from like Western and Central Europe. And so we've got from them a pretty solid classification of Western and Central European languages. Um, and even Eastern European languages, uh, except for apparently Anna is saying uh, grouping Basque with Hungarian. That's a new one. Um, and uh, so like, that's reasonable. But if you take the same logic or the same people and, and they know nothing about the languages of India or China or um, somebody mentioned, Avery mentioned uh, Arabic, which is its whole own thing. Um, they probably don't have enough of the underlying instinct or like cultural understanding to actually draw a decent family tree. Um, so I would imagine that's a big part of it too. Yeah. I mean, like it is worth saying there are, there are um, useful ways to categorize languages into language families um, and for that to, to show you interesting connections and so on. Um, and also to kind of help to distinguish between these two languages are related versus these two languages coexisted in the same place for a while and so have a lot of borrowing overlap. Yeah, um, I'm a Latin teacher and one of my students the other day was actually like, wait, if English isn't a romance language, why do we have so many Latinate words in our language and I was like well a lot of reasons but you know let us go back to 1066 <laughs> I, literally what I said <laughs> right the the French came in they were like ha 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 we speak French and all the English people were like we want to be cool we'll speak French and then there was like the the renaissance and people doing science and people deciding to do all their science in latin so we have all these scientific words that sound like latin and so english has coexisted with all of these romance languages and borrowed in a ton of stuff still doesn't make us descended from latin um so i'm gonna take a small tangent here even though i know that jenny is readying the the electric shock button yes um so uh, my partner, Sonia, and I have a friend whose name is Morgan, and uh, she has recently very graciously um, let us beta read a novel that she has written. And um, it's a really excellent novel. I really hope that it gets bought and published because I would like a lot of other people to read it. Um, but we were giving her feedback after reading it and so on. And one of the things in the novel is a series of, you know, there are magic users in the novel and they have words that they use to activate spells. Um, and she had tried to make a differentiation between different communities of magic users as to which ones they were. So there is a, a group of German witches, there is a group of uh, British witches, there are a few other things in there. And um, we took some time talking about um, what are the words that she chose to, to do that, right? Um, where I had, I had 
sort of said like it it kind of sounds like you're doing the you know vaguely latin vaguely greek thing and she had sort of said well actually i I wanted to make a differentiation between what is being said by the german which is what's what's being said by the english which is and we kind of talked about how um how what identity do these witches want to claim and especially on the english side because you have a modern english thing um which is very french and latin it because um because of William of Normandy and all of that stuff. Um, before that, you have um, you have English, but it is very like Danish uh, Danish overlap because that is where those tribes came from, and it it is very, and they traded with the Danes a lot and so on. And before that, you've got Welsh and related Gaelic languages and so on. Um, so it's a question of if they want to establish themselves or claim the identity of being from the British Isles, which time period is important to them? So uh, that's, a t- that's a tangent and we're at 10 minutes. Uh, since we're, by the way, we're, we're keeping ourselves to a time limit because we're live and I don't get to go back and edit all of our tangents out. So yes. um, we have somebody in the waiting room. So, all uh, right. so Stephanie. Hey Stephanie. Hello. What? Can you hear my uh, audio okay? Yes, you are all good. So the question I had was something that actually just happened to me earlier today where I was thinking about trying to spell handkerchief and I was struggling to realize that there was two letters that I didn't realize were actually part of the spelling. And I was wondering if you can talk about silent letters and why it seems English has so many. Sure. Out of curiosity, what were the two letters you didn't realize were in there? Um, I didn't realize the K was in there. Like when I was trying to spell it, I thought it was a C. And then I realized that the D was also there as well. I was trying mm-hmm. to sound it out and it just, it was very confusing. I had to Google it and I felt ashamed. I mean, good. no one should feel ashamed for needing to figure out how to spell an English word. Um, before I actually talk about handkerchief, I want to talk about uh, a tweet that I have seen multiple people share with me in the past uh, three days, uh, which is about the word dragon. <laughs> um, and we'll find the tweet and link it. Uh, but it was the the parent who was tweeting talking about their like three or four year old kid who was arguing with them about how it should be spelled with a J at the beginning because it's dragon. And um, I just, I, I was reminded how much I love the process of watching little kids uh, who are learning to read and write, like sound things out and the totally reasonable assumptions that they make, which seems so absurd to us who have internalized the rules uh, and forgotten about that period of our lives. Um, so anyway, that was a cute story and I wanna remind us to find that link. Um, as for handkerchief, uh, I think there's a few things that have happened. Um, one is that handkerchief is a compound of hand and kerchief. And part of the problem is that we, or at least I don't really have kerchief um, in my 
dialect anymore. Like that is an outdated word to me. Yes, that's um, true. The only place I have actually heard it and the only reason I know that it is a word is because the night before Christmas poem has a line about I in my kerchief and ma in her cap. Uh, and really? That is the only place I've ever heard that word. Um, but you also see it in, again, a slightly less but still pretty outdated uh, word, uh, neckerchief, which is uh, what you particularly hear in, um, or at least I have heard in the context of Boy Scouts who have their little bandana that they wrap around their neck and a cool little slide up thingy. My dad is crying at home, I think, at that description. But anyway, um, and so, um, you have the, the concept of a kerchief and then you have the one you wear around your neck and the one you carry for your hand. Um, so like, that's where that word comes from and that's why the D and the K are in there in the beginning. Um, and the, sure, a bolo, I believe you. I don't know that word. Um, uh, and so, well, yeah, oh. go ahead. Well, and, and so it's one of these things where it, you know, as, as you say, handkerchief, um, that, that cluster of consonants is not a thing that happens in English really well. And so it's hard for us to say it because it isn't a, it just isn't a thing that we're used to saying. And so I think over time mm -hmm. you start to drop letters out or change them to different sounds or, or that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So actually what I would imagine is, um, so what Stephanie said about uh, assuming it was a C for kerchief, like, sure, I mean, it could be. Uh, and then otherwise what's happened is the D sound has disappeared first. And then when you get NK or NC, uh, the ng sound pops up in the middle, just like in words like drink and uh, ink and all of those other words. Um, and so without the D in there, you get hand kerchief, and then that smooshes into hang kerchief. Um, There's the, and the, the D drops out because if you make the an N and then D, you'll see that your tongue is in the same place, which is on a, on a ridge on the top of your mouth called the alveolar ridge. And so it's really easy to just drop the D out because N -d and N is, pretty similar well and also because duk is hard yes and so if you don't need it and like especially because there isn't a word handkerchief and a word handkerchief that we have to separate in any way and so there's no reason to carefully keep that d sound in there um, Marie makes a good point in the chat that also we have a word hanker in the language and a lot of times you will see that words follow patterns that already exist. Mm -hmm. And, and um, so it hasn't happened with handkerchief. Well, so handkerchief's pronunciation from hand to hang probably is influenced by hanker, but we haven't re-spelled it and it doesn't seem like people have reanalyzed it so that mm -hmm. the meaning is different or the, the, you know, that hanker becomes kind of part of the, the word sometimes that happens and um especially when those things are folk etymologies or they're like in progress they're called egg corns 
um, because people, some folks have taken acorn and said, oh, I think that word is egg corn because it kind of looks like, kind of looks like an egg textured like a corn. Um, yeah, this is, um, can I talk about spelling? Do we have, sure. I mean, I don't, we don't have time to talk about spelling. I'm going to talk about spelling for just a little bit. English spelling. People like to rag on English spelling and I think English spelling is great um, because it does a different thing than most other languages uh, or most other, uh, yeah, languages spelling does. So a lot of languages, especially those with um, alphabets and abugidas and so on and so forth, um, they use the spelling to tell you how to pronounce the word. And English does not do that. We are taught that it does that, but actually what English spelling does is it teaches us the etymology of the word and where the word comes from. So you can look at words that are spelled similarly um, and they're pronounced differently because they are from different uh, either times or source languages or, or that kind of thing. Um, and in handkerchief, for example, you can very clearly see, especially if you know the word kerchief in a different context, or if you know the word neckerchief, um, neckerchief, handkerchief, I don't know. Um, you can really clearly say, oh, this is a kerchief, but it goes around your neck or it goes in your hand, it's for your hands or that kind of thing. Even if the pronunciation is not, not the same. Um. Yeah, and actually you got to something that I also thought of originally uh, when we heard this question, which is um, the spelling, it shows us the source of the word and in, in some ways it shows us the pronunciation of the word. Um, oh yeah, and, I mean, it, it at least hints toward it. Yeah, um, but now I have lost my train of thought. Oh, sorry. Um, no, that's okay. Um, oh no, I remember. So, but the other part of the thing that has happened with English spelling is not only have words come from different uh, languages or different periods of time, but a lot of the actually native English words, the Germanic, Danish, English English words um, were phonetically spelled at one point. And then our pronunciation has drifted substantially since spelling was um, uh, standardized and we never updated the spelling. Um, and another part of the, I shouldn't say problem, but another part of the puzzle is that when uh, spelling was becoming standardized, when, uh, what's his name, Webster, Webster wrote the first like major dictionary, um, the different words that people, the different words that got included, got included in a, with a phonetic spelling by the people who used those words the most. And so some words are phonetically spelled like Southern England would pronounce them. And some words are phonetically spelled like Northern England would pronounce them. And even if both words existed in both regions, if for example, sofa and couch 
both exist everywhere, but the Northerners prefer to say sofa and the Southerners prefer to say couch. And I am making that up completely. So please don't quote me. Um, then you would get the, the Northern spelling of sofa and the Southern spelling of couch. And those might not match up phonetically um, because maybe they have the same sound in them or maybe they don't, but they could or whatever. So, right. Um, so for dictionaries, I think Johnson wrote the first, the first one, but Webster is in the US and there is an additional thing there, which is A, he's the guy who decided to drop the U in color and to spell center differently and so on. And he also, I think, we don't do research folks, um, that he also, I think, put the B it back into debt. So debt has a B in it and it does not come from debit or debitum. It is a, a native English word that was correctly, correctly, that was originally spelled D-E-T, sort of originally and etymologically. And people came along and said, oh, that sounds like a Latin word. And it must, you know, the idiots must have spelled it phonetically. So we're going to put a B back in it. And it's not back in, it's, it's not correct. <laughs> yeah. So um, there's also, so on the, on the idea of choosing which words go in, um, the first person to bring the printing press to England, um, <laughs> Stephanie just jumped out of, out of the Zoom. Thank you, Stephanie. That was a really great question. Obviously, it has given us a lot of fodder. Um, the, the first person, his first name was William, and I can't remember his, um, his last name, but he brought the printing press to England and had to decide which words to use because he was only going to um, only going to print one book for distribution in the northern part of England and the southern part of England, and he did like a lot of uh, like a lot of uh, kind of agonizing and research and stuff to to try to figure out which he was going to choose. Um, I don't know that he was doing it like for the good of all England kind, right? But he he was really trying it, uh, trying to like make the right choice because mm -hmm. he was like, once you have it in a book, people need to understand it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Marie uh, also mentions the thing about the printing press and Bex in the chat also talks about uh, Johnson and Webster. Thank you, Bex. And also points out that the S in island um, is was added like the B in debt. Um, and you can actually, you can like kind of see this if you go to Iceland, which uh, in Icelandic is Island and Every time that I saw that, I would try to pronounce it "island" because I've been. Um, I think there's some there's some web between "isle" and "island," and that "isle" is like I S L E "isle" is from "isla," but mm -hmm. "island" is not. It was I L A N D. And then people were like, "Oh, this is an abbreviation of that, so we'll put the S in it." Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, well, the, the electric shock has come and gone, but, um, yes. And we haven't even talked about till and until no, no, another time, uh, do we have anyone in the waiting room? 
we do not have anyone in the waiting room. Okay. Um, and I don't see any more questions in the chat. Oh, well, oh, good. I was going to say, I want to um, pick up Elijah's question here, um, which is related, but I'm going to call it a new question. Um, give us like two minutes on this. Uh, so in Russian, you're taught to use the etymology to deduce the spelling um, and use that as a guess. It usually works. Can you do that in English? I would say yes, if you are confident in the etymology of a thing. Um, but like, I mean, for a good example would be anything that ends in ology, like etymology is 99% likely going to come from Greek. And so you should assume that anything in a word that sounds like f would be spelled ph, um, because that's how we have chosen to spell Greek f sounds. Um, that, that's a really good point. It's also one of the reasons why in spelling bees, you can ask for the origin of the word. Mm -hmm. um, and conversely, you can learn some of these spelling patterns um, and use them to go backward to what is the likely etymology of the word. So if you see words that have th or ph um, in them that sound European, Latin-y, Greek-y, uh, it's gonna be Greek and not Latin because Latin didn't have th and ph uh, um, except in the words they stole from Greek. So, um, Likewise, if you have a V in a word, it's probably Latin and not Greek because ancient Greek didn't have a V. Um, modern Greek is different and ask me about that another time. Um, okay, should we move on to Anna's question? Yeah, let's. So uh, Anna says, when and why did English switch from numbers in a hundreds, ones, tens pattern like German a gentleman on the wrong side of five and 30 uh, to the modern hundreds, tens, ones. Uh, I am gonna use this as a really good example or a, a sly way to plug another podcast called The History of English. Um, History of English is a, is a fantastic podcast. Um, it is 40-ish minute long episodes and the um, guy who does them starts at the beginning of English and is slowly working his way through the time stream to talk about various things and words when they come into being and changes and so on. There are a couple of episodes that are specifically about numbers and units of measurement um, that are very interesting. Talking about stuff like the long hundred where hundred in English used to mean what we would say 120 now. Um, and because it's based on a dozen and a gross and a hundred is, you know, gross is a dozen times a dozen, but a hundred would have been 10 times a dozen and a bunch, a bunch of other really excellent stuff like that. That's why the English pound used to be 120 cents. Yep. Based off the long hundred. English money words are like, like old British money words are so much yeah but that's a different podcast that is a different podcast um also i want to shout out jenny who 
put in the chat a different plug for the history of English podcast simultaneously. Oh no, so, that was, that was me. Oh, I, that was also I you. thought I wasn't going to get a chance to do it, it. So, okay. Well, I was really impressed that you guys were so much on the same wavelength, but it was just Eli. Um, uh, the other thing that I want to take that as an opportunity to talk about is I personally know nothing about why English does that or did that or whatever, but I have a fun fact about French. Um, and it has been a pretty popular uh, meme on the internet in the past decade or so to make fun of the fact that French, uh, if you count by tens, you go 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 60, 10, 420s, 420s, 10, 100, uh, which means that if you say the number 99, you say 420s, 19, which is a ridiculous way to say 99. And the system in and of itself is what it is. Um, I don't know why it's like that, but it is and that, that whatever. What kills me about this counting system is that they used to have the words for 70, 80, and 90. Like they are extant words in older French literature. And whether it was intentional or just someone started counting 6019 and someone else picked it up and suddenly it stuck, there was a semi-conscious movement from 60, 70, 80, 90 to this nonsense. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, that just really, really infuriates me as a, as a human being. I can see why that would be infuriating. <laughs> I was all ready to be like, well, like maybe there was a duodecimal like base 20 system, which you see a lot, sure. especially in European languages, but sure. also all over the place. Um, I, I, I was ready and until my friend, a French teacher uh, who I think listens to this podcast, shout out Adam, uh, uh, told me this. I was like, whatever, they can do their stupid 20 math. I don't care. And then he was like, no, they used to count by tens and then they just stopped, but only for some numbers. And I was like, okay. Uh, Anna, by the way, says that uh, Swiss French still uses those God words. God bless the Swiss. Which um, I don't, I don't remember that from when I was there. But also, I don't speak French basically at all. So uh, it was I, I was I probably looked at it and was like, ah, oh, that looks vaguely like a Spanish word. I can translate that. Um, yeah. So I wonder. So I don't think that this is like a French influence thing because um, Anna pointed out that the example that they gave is from Sense and Sensibility, which on the order of the history of the English language is a fairly recent work yeah. um, and is definitely several hundred years after, um, you know, after French came in. Um, I kind of just wonder if it is a thing that people started to do or if you know we went through one of those waves of like we must make the language more logical why do we count from hundreds and then ones to tens when we could count you know you yeah. sometimes see this people uh, say that like oh the american system of writing dates is illogical because it doesn't go from smallest to largest or largest mm -hmm. to smallest um but i Honestly, I do not know. So I think, Anna, you have stumped us and we are going to drink. Um, 
in addition to sense and sensibility, there's also the four and 20 blackbirds. Yeah. Uh, what do you call that nursery rhyme? Um, yeah. I think it might be called four and 20 blackbirds. Well, I meant what's that genre? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but so I think that, you know, the pattern is, is old. Um, I think this is, this also sort of might be related to like, we don't really count things in scores mm -hmm. anymore. You know, we don't count things in grosses. Uh, Jenny says it's also called Sing a Song of Sixpence, which is absolutely correct. True. Um, so I kind of wonder if there's just a general, um, you know, numerical simplification that happened. Sometimes this happens when a when a, a group of lexical items becomes more relevant to a wider group of people. Yeah, actually, here's my other hypothesis, uh, which someone feel free to fact check this, or I'll fact check myself later. But um... <laughs> this this podcast's motto: someone feel free to fa <laughs> fact check this. Yes, exactly. Uh, like the point at which. Uh, more people started becoming um, numerate and needing to do calculations um, because it's, you know, four and 20 blackbirds or the age of five and 30 is like a number and it's a, um, it's like a, a milepost, a specific yeah. number, uh, a benchmark kind of number. Whereas if you're doing math and you're like, I have 24 blackbirds and 18 doves trying to do that sort of calculation with the digits in a different order than you're saying them out loud would be confusing. Yeah, and it is still decomposable. So um, that's probably, cause I'm, I immediately thought like, okay, but then why did words like 11 or 18 not change to you know ten one or ten eight or something. Yep. And I think because those are not really decomposable. Right. Eighteen, the etymology is easy to to see, but eleven and twelve are one left and two left, which I I wonder how many. Well, our listeners probably actually already knew that, but we're all I nerds here, so. Um, but five and twenty is not a lexicalized phrase. It's you know, it's, it is three words in a row. <laughs> exactly. That's uh, three, three words in a trench coat masquerading <laughs> as a number. Um, so yeah, Amazing. excellent, excellent question. Um, we, we do not know. Yeah. We just don't know. Um, I'm going to guess, and Jenny, correct me if I'm wrong. We have time for about, um, one or maybe two more questions? Uh, yeah, I don't think I see any in the chat and we don't have anybody uh, on. So um, if you have a question, put it in the chat or jump in the Zoom um, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll take care of that. Jenny, will you repaste the Zoom link in case there's folks who have just joined us? Yeah, I really, I really cannot um, cannot recommend the history of pot the history of English podcast enough. Um, it's fantastic. 
the ones that I've really liked listening to are really great. The ones where I'm not super interested in the topic, I have fallen asleep to because the guy's voice is just so wonderful. That is the best. I think while while we're waiting, do we want to do some some podcast shout outs? Yeah. Um, so my shout out is going to go on the subject of people whose voices I love. Um, the podcast called On Claire, E N C L A I R, like the French phrase, um, is done by Dr. Claire Hardacre, uh, whose name I cannot spell. Um, and it is a forensic linguistics podcast. Uh, I don't know where in England she's from, but she has a really lovely accent. And her voice reminds me a lot of Tom Scott, who is a YouTube person with a similar voice. And I just, I would listen to either of them, um, like read me a cookbook or something, but instead they tell me really cool things about language, which makes me happy. Um, yes. Also, Tom Scott, not a podcaster, but a YouTuber, and uh, very, very relevant for anybody who's enjoying this uh, this podcast right now. Yes. Um, do you have any podcast shoutouts, Eli? Um, I have so many of them, um, but I think we have a couple of questions, so let's let's go for that. I've been been putting podcast recs uh, in in yeah. here, but you know, um, yeah. All right, so Elijah asked, and you're right, I saw that question earlier and totally spaced. Is there an explanation for the ubiquity of subject, verb, object, and the non-existence of object, verb, subject, word order across world languages? Uh, I'm gonna take a drink. I don't. Um, yeah, so OVS, uh, object, verb, subject is attested. So all, actually, no, I think it's attested, but it's attested in like 1% of, I was about to say, I think that all of the, the combinations are attested, but I don't 100% know. Um, I have the same instinct, but certainly OVS is like. Yeah. And also like different languages are more and less strict about word order. And mm -hmm. so trying to decide whether a language is, for example, SOV versus OSV can sometimes be really difficult, yep. um, that kind of thing. Um, I, so I, th I think the thing that I would say is it probably has to do with movement on the syntactic tree and it probably has to do with um, how far things have to move. Um, oh yeah, so Avery oh, yeah. points out that, uh, that, that Klingon is OVS, which it is, and which Mark Okrand did specifically because it was such a, a low attested. That's um, amazing. Thing. Um, also Apollai and uh, Hikaryana, which uh, apologies to both our captioner and anyone who's a speaker of that language. Um, but hey, that's really exciting that there are two uh, non-Klingon languages in that family. Um, um, but I, I don't know. I have, again, a hypothesis that I am backing up with zero actual evidence. Um, 
feel free to either fact check me or use this as a research topic. Somebody who needs to write a paper, free, free paper topic for you. Um, there is also a tendency in some languages to be much less strict about the syntactic order of words like this and much more strict on what is called topic comment. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. Where whether it is the, as I would say to my students, the subject typically is the doer of the action. So if I say I bought a car, the other day. The car is the topic of the sentence. It's the thing that the sentence is actually about, but grammatically the subject is me because I'm the one who did the buying. Um, and so in English, it's really, really weird, even though the car is the, the topic, it would be very unusual to be like a car I bought the other day or a car I bought one the other day. Um, in standard English, anyway. Yes, I cannot speak to all of the Englishes. Um, but yes, that would be unusual in most dialects of English, I think. In uh, ASL, for example, it is perhaps not obligatory, but very, very, very frequent that you would say, a new car, I bought one yesterday. And actually, you wouldn't even say the word one. That's just how it sounds in English. So a new car I bought yesterday or a new car yesterday I bought. Um, and so you still tend to have in ASL the subject before verb pattern, but whether you put the subject or the object first depends strongly on which one you actually care about. Um, and so my assumption is that, um, oh, uh, my assumption is that um, things like OSV, or OVS rather, what we're talking about, is that um, that is the least likely order of topicing, commenting. Um, yeah, I could, I could totally see that. I don't I, actually have any idea if that's true, but that's kind of what occurred to me. You might also have a pragmatic reason where mm -hmm. things are more surprising, like are, where you are waiting for essential information when you're looking at OVS or something like that, because subject tends to be important um, or, or something like that. But I, I think relating it to topic comment kind of shows that categorizing languages with uh, where their subject verb object order is, is a topology that, or not a, to, not a topology, a typology, a classification scheme that originates from scholars in languages where word order is important and where uh, that makes sense to do that. And I think if you, um, if, if we had a lot of linguistics research coming out of languages that were organized in a topic comment, you could just as clearly ask, why are these languages doing half comment topic back half of their comments? Yep. Kind of thing, right? Yep. Or um, like, like, uh, why are they doing uh, topic, comment, comment adjunct, right? Yeah. And why is, why is that weirdly common? Yeah. Um, and Marie in the chat makes a good point that English can make most of these other word orders work, but it feels a little meandering or it feels a little forced. Um, and that's true. Like almost every word order 
well, that's a gross overstatement, but a lot of word orders are possible in English, but they might not be natural or they might not be neutral. Um, yeah. And, and, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, and w one of the reasons for that is that English doesn't have strong case marking. And mm -hmm. so it's really unclear um, what what a given noun is doing in a sentence unless you have word order. And case marking and word order and so on is a whole other thing. So somebody sent us a question about that, but we yeah. are not going to go into it here. But I, I, I do want to say it can feel meandering or it can get marked in some, some ways. So for example, if you have... Um, if you have somebody who uh, is an immigrant from Germany, for example, or um, you know Poland or Russia, I sort of have this in the like Eastern European Jewish immigrant thing, where you will often get a topic comment kind of a thing. It also makes me think of Yoda, um, who a lot of people, um, when they try to do Yoda speak, they go object, subject, verb, but uh, citation needed, but I would expect that an analysis of Yoda's speech patterns would would uh, conform more to topic comment than object subject verb. Yes, and I think that frequently topic comment in English comes out as object subject verb because uh, that's the only time it's not distinguishable from from subject object verb or subject verb object yeah 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 awesome very cool uh cool we had one other question but it was about baby speak and i think we did that in episode two so do yes. we want to do that or do we want to um yes uh well i don't actually want to recover that but i see that elijah came to the same conclusion in the chat that we came to in our podcast episode which was it's probably just a register uh like a a formality level basically um, yeah definitely i mean not definitely i don't know that we ever went and did did research on it um uh yeah, Lingthusiasm did a bonus episode on this recently, as Marie points out. Um, but yeah, go listen to episode two, and uh, and we talk about it. I think at length. Yeah. Um, um, but thank you, Elijah, for also pointing that out. I think that's um, it's a really good observation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm gonna guess we have time for maybe one more question, if anyone has one. Um, Trying to think if I have any other podcast shout outs while I'm at this. Well, so we had some some YouTube stuff. Tom Scott is really great. He is a linguist. He he does videos about a lot of different things, um, but he has done a series that are very um, called the Language Files. Some of them he's collaborated with Gretchen McCulloch on, um, and uh, he they are very accessible linguistics videos. Um, there's also uh, Crash Course Linguistics, um, which is a really excellent tour through uh, through linguistics and worth, worth watching. Yeah. Um, there is also a channel I'm putting in the chat. No, I'm not. That's a terrible link. Let's try that again. Uh, there's a channel I'm putting in the chat called Native Lang. Uh, no E on native. Um, 
and uh, they do a lot of really cool stuff. Um, and I really like the narrator. Um, so we've got one last question. I think we can make this our last question um, yes. from Bex, which is, if you made a conlang, what is the feature, sound, or word that it would absolutely contain? That is such a good question. Um, Jenny, if you want to answer this too, you can either put it in the chat or find your microphone or whatever, or not. Um, and word diagnostics, nice. Uh, okay, a conlang, what would I put in it for sure? Um, I don't know that I have a ready answer to this. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Actually, I think I know. I want it to have, um, and this is like kind of a double answer, but I want to have inclusive and exclusive we or us um, so that I can say like, we went out to dinner meeting me and my husband, even if I'm talking to Eli or I can be like, talking to Eli and be like, we did a really cool podcast. Um, but I also want third person pronoun flexibility. Um, so like Latin does a thing where very commonly, if you have two people or two groups, um, you'll just refer to one of them as this guy and one of them as that guy. Uh, or these people and those people and using the actual words he, she, it, or they is super unusual. You tend to just, if you're using pronouns at all, you use this one and that one, um, which is so much clearer than uh, the English, like she was talking to her about her cat kind of situation. Um, so those are the two, I, I just want clearer pronouns. Uh, don't we all? <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's really cool. It makes me think a little bit of Japanese doesn't do exactly the same thing, but it is tough to use third person print. Well, it is unusual to use third person pronouns normally in Japanese. But the groups of people thing made me think of they um, they have a, a suffix tachi, which you can attach to a word, and it just basically means that person or sometimes thing and like the people around or associated with them. That's and very so you clever. Can, you can get like a group of people just by like designating a person and then being like, and the people that are associated with them. So if I say like Eli Tachi, that's like Eli and company. Yeah. And company is actually a really great uh, translation of it. Um, but it can be metaphorical or it can be sure. physical. So it can either be like, that person and the people near them, or it can be like that person and their family or and their sports team or, and you know, whatever. That's awesome. I really like that. Um, for my conling, uh, you know, I feel like I would want to do some kind of variation on something that we have, but like that we have seen attested, but flipped. Like Lauren Gaughan talks about that she did a conling where they have base words for smells. Oh yeah. Where in English we we have base words for tastes, but all of our smells are uh allusions to like or comparisons to like fruits and things mm -hmm. and stuff. Um it would do something like that. Or 
I think I would go just really heavy on infixation and circumfixation. Um, yeah. Because those are neat and they don't get used a lot. And I feel like they would be really fun. Mm hmm. Very cool. Good question, Bex. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. Um, shall we move on to the to the puzzler? We shall. And I got to give a shout out to my mom for this one. Um, she, I think it's from the New York Times, uh, but she's been getting these like daily puzzles and just sending them to me for fun. And I was like, oh, I'm going to steal these for the podcast. She was like, okay, cool. Um, so let me find my share screen button again. Um, there we go. So this is a visual puzzler. Um, and the way that we're going to do this is we're going to take a, a minute or two um, for everyone just to look at it and try to figure out this is a phrase, a common phrase or an idiomatic phrase in English. Um, I will give a couple other hints after people have had a minute to think. Um, we should also say if we have any viewers who are not familiar with American geography, yep. the state on the right is Nevada. Yes. Or possibly Nevada, depending on where you're from. But I believe if you're from there, it's Nevada. Yes. Um, and I yeah. also haven't seen this. So I am playing along with all of you at home. Um, yes. And for anyone who is listening but not actually able to see the screen, uh, the puzzle is a green square, a white plus sign, and a white shape of Nevada. Um, so this is a common English idiomatic phrase. Um, and I'll give you a moment to think. This is like, this is tough. I do not know off the top of my head what this would be. Hmm. I, so, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just, I, I was going to narrate some, mm -hmm. some thoughts. So I'm thinking, is it important that it's green? Is it important that it's a square? Is it important that it's both of them? I'm thinking about Nevada um, has a postal abbreviation that is N-E. Um, oh, N-E sounds like the word any. Um, that could um, be a thing. I'm going to not give you a hint, but just tell you that that's not the postal abbreviation of Nevada. Oh, is it not? Oh, wait, what is? N-E is Nebraska. Is it Nebraska? Oh, great. Uh, well, there goes that. Uh, <laughs> was NV? Is it NV? It is NV. Okay. Um, well, oh, all right. Got it. I was going to say, I got very stuck on this and the hint that uh, helped me with it was to think of the postal abbreviation. Um, so, um, it's okay, Marie, the postal abbreviations are just like, not, uh, they're not always sensible. Nah. Um, um, and yeah, if you, if you have it, 
Well, I was going to say don't put it in the chat, but we had a couple of people who, who put it in. Yep. Um, all right. So, yes, uh, it is green with envy. Um, and this one is just the color green, the, the width for the plus sign, and the state NV. Um, it's a good puzzle. I like that one. Yeah. Um, it's all good. No worries about the spoilers. Um, yeah, so this is fun. I, I'm enjoying the visual puzzle, uh, getting to do that with you guys, and hopefully we can do more of that on future live shows. Um, if you want, actually, no, never mind. I had half an idea. It's fine. Um, I'm going to stop my screen share. Excellent. Um, yeah. So um, I think as we, that is, that's the puzzler. Um, we had we had no previous puzzler, so uh, if you have been current with the podcast, you know that it's it's been a little bit since we have put one out. We have three podcasts recorded. We need to get them edited, and by we, I mean I. I'm very sorry, um, but uh, I will. I'm, a move happened and a whole bunch of stuff, and and I will get back on the horse. Yeah. Um, for that, so and I think. I think that brings us to the end of the show. Yeah. Uh, so that's it for this episode. Uh, thank you to everyone for watching, for asking questions, for joining us to the live show. Uh, this really was a lot of fun. It definitely was. Um, the Linguistics After Dark is produced by M. Fozzing Enterprises. Audio editing is done by Eli. Question wrangling is done by Jenny. Show notes are done by me. And captions today were done by Kelly from eCaptions. Our music is Covert Affair by Kevin McLeod. McLeod. I don't I Could Could go either way. Uh, I've seen show- that name pronounced McLeod. That's all I know. Uh, uh, our show is entirely listener supported. So you can help us out by visiting patreon.com slash mfozzing, E-M-F-O-Z-Z-I-N-G, and by telling your friends about us. That link is also in the description along with our Kofi link. Every episode, we like to thank our patrons and reviewers. Um, so today, special thanks to Ralph, Callie, Rachel, Dre, Bex, and Mitch uh, from Patreon, and a shout out to uh, all the folks who actually talk to us on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube during our accidental hiatus. Uh, so Genevieve, Mo, Tuttle, Elijah, Sunny, Claude, Adrian, Sky, Meg, and Naomi. Um, you guys are the best. We love hearing from you. And uh, please keep it up. Yeah. Uh, so find all our episodes and show notes online at linguisticsafterdark.com or on all of your favorite podcast directories. Uh, And send those questions, text or audio, to questions at linguisticsafterdark.com. You can tweet them at us at LXADpodcast. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, uh, also at LXADpodcast. Yeah. 
All right. And until next time, if you've forgotten about the tongue in your mouth, now you haven't. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Bye.